0: you ever felt like you're falling behind or that the programming world is moving so fast that it's impossible to keep up then there's the issue of where to go to make sure you're up to date the answer is to join a community dedicated to discussing the latest in ruby i mean wouldn't it be nice if you got ruby rogues all day well you can kind of we moved our ruby rogues parlay forum to slack that means you can connect with our listeners and guests on a platform you're most likely already using plus we've set up a keeping current channel that pulls stories from across the web to help you know what people are talking about and coming soon, we'll be holding monthly webinars and roundtable video chats to connect with experts in the community and with each other. So come join us at rubyrogues.com slash parlay. That's rubyrogues.com slash P-A-R-L-E-Y. Hey everybody, and welcome to another My Ruby Story. This week, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm actually going to do an interview with myself, I guess. I thought I would just jump in and share my own story about how I got into Ruby and talk about that part of the journey. So the questions that I typically ask guests, I'm just going to kind of call them out and then I will go ahead and answer them. I don't know how weird this is going to be for me. So hang in there and we'll see how this goes. The first question I usually ask guests is how did you get into programming? And it's kind of an interesting... Journey that I had getting into programming, so I do remember, and I've had a few of the guests on the My Ruby, My JS, and My Angular stories all say that they did a little bit of logo programming when they were a kid, where you had the little turtle on the screen and you would give it commands: turn right so many degrees, go forward so many steps, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and draw shapes on the screen. and I, And I remember doing that. I don't remember exactly how old I was. I want to say I was like seven or eight, like second grade, third grade but I don't remember for sure. I do remember doing that and thinking it was cool and feeling like I was creating something by making it draw a circle or some wonky shape. I also did a little bit of programming in junior high school. So there were, there were two things, one was I was in a math club and so we would go and we would meet actually for one of our classes and we would prepare for math contests. So there was a state math contest for the state of Utah And there was another contest that was kind of a team slash individual challenge called Math Counts. And so we would prepare for that contest or those contests. And then usually by the end of the year, we'd have a couple of months where we could just do whatever. And so our teacher, she was really great. Her name was Mrs. Price. She actually helped us learn Pascal. And we were creating all kinds of different things. Again, a lot of it was drawing, but we did do some mathematical programming for some of the things that we had learned in the class. And when I was in ninth grade, I worked delivering papers and mowing lawns and stuff. And I bought myself a graphing calculator, a TI-85 calculator. And I wound up doing a lot of programming on that. Again, I just wrote programs to solve my homework problems. And I wrote programs just to make up dumb little words and stuff. One of my other friends, he had a TI-83 and I remember he actually figured out how to program it so that it would generate mazes, which is probably reminiscent of the last episode you got on my Ruby story, which was from James Buck because he's done a lot of that stuff. Anyway, it was really interesting, a lot of fun, and I thought it was just kind of an interesting thing. And then in high school, I signed up for an electronics class And I did that primarily because I had developed an interest while spending time with my grandfather. Just to give you a little bit of background there, my grandpa worked for Rockwell International for many, many years when my mom was a kid. One of the projects that he worked on was actually the space shuttle. The solid rocket boosters, they're the the two white tubes on the sides of the big orange tube that push the, um, the shuttle into space. They're, those are actually manufactured in Utah, and the reason they're the, that size—just a side note, interesting fact—is so that they will fit in the on the train and go through tunnels. <laughs> so uh, that that's why they have the diameter they do. But anyway, they were having a problem with the the solid rocket boosters, and particularly the solid rocket fuel, where the fuel. So basically, let me explain. See if I can explain how this works. So there's an empty hole down the middle of the fuel and it's solid fuel so you know it'll hold its shape and as the fuel burns it it basically burns and forces the force down through that hole in the middle of the fuel and if there's any gap between the fuel and the sides of the booster then it will also force pressure down into that area and can actually explode and they were having trouble getting the solid rocket fuel to, and, and I this all has a point, believe me. So anyway, if the pressure builds up on the sides, you know, if they're, if the burn can push down on the sides then it'll blow up, and they were having trouble having the fuel stick to the sides of the booster so that this kind of a thing wouldn't happen. And obviously they couldn't try and send people into space with this kind of problem because it would blow up. So he invented a laser that would actually examine the sides of these rocket boosters and tell them if the if there were any contaminants on the sides of the booster and that solved the problem so that the fuel would stick to it and we wouldn't have explosions due to the boosters so anyway he he was always a tinkerer and he he had built his own little computer he had invented basically a cockpit for model airplanes. So you put your remote in the model airplanes and then through mechanical means, when you pulled back on the steering wheel, it would actually you know, move the lever up to make the airplane go up. So anyway, really, he was kind of that way. And I remember talking to him about a lot of this stuff. He also invented an ellipsometer, which is a tool that measures the thickness of the oxygen layer on silicon disks that are used to make chips. And so, again, you know, he, he had invented a new way of measuring that that was uh, more, both more accurate and was faster than the, the way that they were doing it before so they could actually test more uh, wafers out of a batch. So anyway, I, I kind of came into that, and it got me really, really interested in electronics. So I started taking electronics classes in high school, and the most advanced level of that, we actually had an 8085 processor, And we would push commands in, in binary, in bytecode, so ones and zeros, into one set of pins on one side of the chip, and then we would essentially program it and get results out on the other side, and we had those hooked up to LEDs so we could make it do patterns and stuff like that. And this was all involving math and and these instructions that we would send to the 8085 calculator so i kind of did a wide range of programming as a kid but not necessarily the sort of traditional thing that you see a lot of other people doing where they're saying oh i you know i was building stuff in c and whatever I, i wasn't doing anything that traditional i did also play around with geocities and angel fire and get into web development that way and so i would just you know do html and build dumb little sites i don't even remember what they were about but i remember it was fun and i enjoyed it so then the time came for me to go to college so i went down to brigham young university and i signed up as an electrical engineering major and started taking those classes and one of the classes was introduction to programming and so i took that i took an operating systems class i took a bunch of other programming classes i remember writing Uh, inheritance models for chess pieces and stuff like that. And through all of this, it always felt like programming was sort of a toy, right? It didn't feel like it was a serious thing. And so I didn't take it seriously. I did the web development stuff because it was fun. I did the programming for my classes because it was fun. But I never really considered it a career path. I was really interested in doing a lot more of the chip design and low-level process-driven stuff. So if I had gone the way that I was going in college, I probably would have wound up either designing chips for Intel or AMD or somebody like that, or I would have wound up writing drivers and things like that for for low-level systems. Um, Incidentally, this is why I have some interest in IoT. But as time went on, I realized that A, I wanted to graduate sometime soon, and B, I was actually getting more and more interested in in computers and so I switched my degree from electrical engineering to computer engineering which really did have that focus on the chip design as well as some of the other software elements and so we wrote embedded systems and we wrote VSDL which is a a language for specifying chip design Uh, we did a whole bunch of C we had to write interrupt patterns for for chips I mean all kinds of interesting stuff that we did there And I eventually wound up graduating with a degree in computer engineering and a minor in Italian. Also during that time, I wound up working in the Office of Information Technology. And if you listen to Jameis Buck's episode, uh, we do talk a little bit about that because he worked at BYU as well, just not at the same time. And so we knew some of the same people and worked in some of the same areas within BYU. So that got me interested in some of this stuff and In in particular, there was a guy named Mike, who I worked with at one point, who was doing a whole bunch of e-commerce stuff with PHP and MySQL. And this was, I mean, I think WordPress was out there, but I don't think that e-commerce was really a thing thing. You know, Amazon was kind of coming into its own, and a bunch of these other web companies were up and coming and selling stuff on the internet, but yeah, it, it wasn't a, a big industry like it is now. And he was out there selling sporting goods and things like that. And he was actually making a fair bit of money. And so while I was at BYU in my spare time, yeah, I had spare time between my job and okay, so I didn't do so great as a student. But anyway, I built a system that would allow people to rate the apartments that they lived in near campuses and then it also listed all the amenities that came with the apartment and allowed people to find the apartment that they wanted based on what was in it and things like that. And I really got into it. It was, it was kind of an eye opener for me just in the sense that I really did enjoy building something and that I could build something that actually meant something, you know, because the, the classes I was taking at that point were like artificial intelligence And so we were using Bayesian algorithms to uh, determine the best path for a tank capture the flag game that the university was using to teach us that stuff and some of the other AI algorithms. But it all felt like toys and games until I got down to this actual project. And so I, I really got excited about that. I also built a system in Bash that would go out and download the updates from the Red Hat servers. And then R sync them over to all of the other servers that needed them and then run the updates so that they all didn't have to go out to the Internet through a proxy that we had on campus in order to get those updates. And it it made things more secure and it also lowered the load considerably on those proxies every week. So, you know, I did some of these projects and I started to get an inkling of, oh, this is actually useful. But I was still not completely sold that I wanted to be a programmer professionally. I had a lot of friends who were into like programming and games or they were trying to program little utilities that helped them with different things. But for the most part, it really felt like still kind of a not a serious profession to me. And, and I knew that the, the computers and the servers and everything else all ran on, on software. But at that point, those kinds of software developers seemed, A, completely unattainable, and B, completely corporate. And I was kind of tired of the corporate scene by the time I was done working for BYU. So I went out and I applied. Um, in the meantime, I also did an internship writing patent applications. Uh, and that convinced me not to go into law. But I wound up going over to a company called Mosey, and that was my first job out of college. It was also, I worked for them for like six months while I was finishing up my degree. And Mosey does online backup, and I'm not going to go into the whole story there. But the highlights are, and this answers the question, how did you get into Ruby? The highlights there are basically that they were using Ruby on Rails for their web-based system. They do online backup. So if you have a computer, Windows, Mac, whatever, and you have data that you don't want to lose, then you back it up to Mosey and Mosey has a copy of it on their servers and you can get it back whenever you need and you request that through the web system. And now anyway, that was all written in Ruby on Rails and I was working in tech support. So people would uh, email in and eventually they added calling for their professional customers. And so people would call in with problems and myself and another engineer would help handle all those requests. And at one point the Mosey was featured in the wall street journal. And when it was featured in the wall street journal, all of a sudden our support requests as well as our business, you know, kind of blew up. It got really big, really fast. And what wound up happening is, is that there were only two of us answering these emails and answering the phones. And it just became way, way too much. And, Part of our problem was that the process basically was being done by, hey, have you answered this one or do you have this one open in Thunderbird? We were using Thunderbird to answer these emails. Uh, yes, no, and then we'd move on to the next one, you know, depending on whether or not it had been handled. Well, that was somewhat inefficient, especially since there was basically we were using mutexes but it was a verbal mutex and sometimes i'd get halfway through writing a response to an email to find out that tom my coworker, had already answered it so he started working on a system in ruby on rails that would pull all of the emails out of the email box and this was all in his spare time and i started helping him as soon as i figured out what he was doing and then it would put them into a database and then it would set a mutex, which is basically just a block that says, I've got this, nobody else can touch this, on the email for about 15 minutes. And so if it got opened, it would not be allowed to be touched again unless somebody responded to it, that that was allowed. But it wouldn't show up for anyone else for 15 minutes. And so when you, hit, when you typed in the response and hit send, it would immediately, and this was in a web browser, Pull up the next email out of the database, and it would shoot—you know—shoot the other email off, and it would all show up as responded to in, in Thunderbird if anyone was looking. But at that point, we were just quickly handling these requests, and there was no checking to see if anyone else had handled it. But the other thing was was that it was also there was there was no need to kind of go through and and triage some of them and say, oh, these ones are critical or whatever, because we could then get through probably two to three times the load because it would load the next issue and immediately we wouldn't have any downtime waiting or searching or making decisions about what to answer next. So then we started adding other features in. So we added canned responses. I started working on a knowledge base that went into it because again, we were at this point hiring people to help us with this job because it was becoming a bigger and bigger job. I also started keeping track of how often a canned response was used so that we could tell the developers in the various systems where the problems were occurring. So, hey, we're getting this kind of a connection error on a regular basis. This is a problem. Or, hey, we're running into this issue on a regular basis. Can you do something about it? And that really, really helped because then we were able to actually get some of the more common issues fixed. While I was there, I also wound up doing some work in QA. I actually uh, spec'd out a machine, had the company buy it, set up vmware on it and spun up a whole bunch of machines and then just basically marched through a bunch of test steps and again that was to catch issues before they they went out and that would again reduce our workload in tech support and i wasn't so much worried about how big the department got as much as i was worried about just reducing the amount of work that we had to do so that we could keep up and make sure that we were serving people well but anyway so I, i was kind of a manager slash programmer And this really got me serious about both programming and about Ruby on Rails. And I'm gonna diverge a little bit here because the next question that I usually ask is what do you feel like you've contributed to the Ruby community? And this story or this part of the story leads directly to podcasting. So I I mentioned that I had started the QA effort. Eventually they hired a QA person and they also hired a consultant to help with QA. So they got things rolling with QA, kind of took that off my plate. I ran the Mac beta for Mosey and things really started to to work out for me anyway until they didn't. And basically what happened was the company got acquired and the person that I was dealing with as my boss decided that it would be expedient to divide the responsibilities for tech support between myself and the person that I basically had as my assistant director over support because by this time Tom had moved on to other things in the company and so I was sort of in charge of support and so they basically took away all my management responsibilities and said yeah you're just going to be the technical resource for support which really wasn't where I wanted to go and as I thought about it I realized you know what I don't necessarily want to be on the management track because by then we were working for EMC corporation who had acquired Mosey and they kind of showed us their career tracks that you could follow. And I was like, I want to be on the developer track, not the manager track. So I went and talked to my boss and he was perfectly happy to shut me off over to QA because I would open my mouth if I saw a problem. And that was not necessarily the most politically expedient thing to do with him kind of calling the shots. The CEO was doing business development for EMC at that point and wasn't necessarily as involved in the day-to-day stuff. So anyway, yeah, I'm kind of painting him as a jerk and he kind of was. He, he's a nice guy, but he was definitely consolidating power at this point and I was not helping him. <laughs> so so anyway, I moved over to QA and I worked with a guy named Don who actually bought an iPod back when they were had actual hard drives in them. You know, they were like 80 gigs and had the little circle play button thing on them, the, the big circle with the little circle in the middle. Anyway, he was listening to podcasts and got me listening to podcasts. And eventually I found a podcast called Rails Envy and I started listening to that. Now, Rails Envy was Jason Cypher and Greg Pollock. And Greg, you might know from Code School and other ventures that he's involved in at this point. So because he's moved on from Code School, Code School was purchased by Pluralsight. But anyway, I got it in my head that I wanted to start a podcast. And so I emailed Greg and I said, hey, I'm thinking about starting a podcast about Rails. Do you have any suggestions? Because I don't want to just duplicate your show. And he emailed me back, which kind of floored me. I thought podcasters were celebrities. Turns out that's not necessarily the case. But anyway, so he encouraged me to start a podcast. And I was a little bit surprised by that. But at the same time, I was like, wow, this is awesome. And so I took his advice and I started interviewing people. And when I didn't have an interview, I would just kind of off the cuff talk about whatever I was learning about Rails. And I was new. So, you know, I, I didn't know anything, but I was learning. And that that's kind of the big thing, I think, that I learned from that particular time in my programming and podcasting careers is that even if you don't know what you're doing, just being out there and talking about what you do know or what you have learned is definitely a move worth making. And it opened a lot of doors for me. I wound up interviewing James Edward Gray, who I got to know through other means as well. And we wound up uh, starting Ruby Rogues together. Um, I got to know David Hennemeyer Hansen. I got to meet a whole bunch of other people. And it was just really, really cool. So that started to work out for me. It also led to me taking over Teach Me to Code from my friend Eric Berry. And I started doing screencasts on Ruby on Rails as well. So anyway, we figured all that out and I did all that stuff. I also contributed a couple of open source libraries. One of them connects to Project Honeypot. And it's funny because I, f- I always forget that I wrote that and then I'll have somebody email me dude, this is exactly what we needed. We have all these spammers that no longer can use our site. Yay! So, yeah, all in all, you know, those are kinds of the things that I, I feel like I've contributed to the Ruby community. I also feel like some of the work that I've done in JavaScript with JavaScript Jabber and Adventures in Angular have also contributed to Ruby, though not directly. It's more of a tangential thing. As people get deeper into web development, they realize that they need to understand JavaScript or Ruby or Angular or something better. So, yeah, I mean, just just lots of things there. I'm trying to get back into writing open source. And so I'm actually probably going to just start up a project and then just record snippets of me working on it and just walk through some of the things that I'm doing with it. But, yeah, that, that I feel like it's funny because a lot of people are like, yeah, well, I wrote these libraries or I've given these talks. And for me, I feel like the primary means that I have contributed to the community is through podcasts and screencasts. And I, I want to get back to screencasts. I miss doing that stuff. Overall, that that's really where I feel like a lot of my contributions have been. I've had people ask me also then, and this is the fourth question, is what are you working on now? And I, I have a whole list. And uh, to be perfectly honest, I probably spend most of my time doing businessy stuff to keep the podcast going and try and make sure that all the bills get paid and everything so that things go out. So yeah, so I'm working on a lot of that stuff. I'm trying to pull together a Ruby Dev Summit. And if you go to rubydevsummit.com, you can check that out. I'm working on inviting speakers and making sure that it's an awesome event. I am also working on some other things just related to growing the podcast. So I currently have uh, Ruby Rogues and My Ruby Story. I have another series of segments I'm going to be putting together called Ruby Rants. And I'm also incidentally doing this for JavaScript and Angular. So I have my JS story or my JavaScript story and my Angular story, and I'm also going to be doing JavaScript rants and and Angular rants. The Angular rants are going to be somewhat noob (laughs) focused because uh, I, I just haven't had the time to get into Angular the way I want. But those are all things that I'm working on. I also have gotten a lot of requests for some podcasts on some new topics. And so I am looking at areas like React and Elixir in particular. And then I'm, I've had a few people approach me about doing one on web security, about WordPress and about artificial intelligence. And so I'm looking at those as well. And then beyond all of that, you know, I'm trying to keep up on all the other things I have going on. So I'm an officer at my Toastmasters club. I'm a Cub Scout leader. I do a whole bunch of just other things in life. Uh, I have five kids. And so, you know, just trying to keep up on all of that. And, yeah, a lot of people are like, man, that's a lot. And, you know, do you ever get burned out? Well, I took a burnout quiz this morning, and the answer is definitively yes. So, at least if this quiz is any indicator. So, yeah, there are three aspects that they measure. And I, I one of them was moderate, and the other two were pretty high. So... Anyway, so yeah, I'm working on that as well and trying to find the balance with everything. And then I've also been working on just getting systems around a lot of this stuff so that it just happens automatically. And so those are kind of the areas that I've been working in. And I've been using some of the coding tools and skills for that stuff. So for example, I wrote an RSS builder. This was like three or four years ago I built it. And I built it in Rails 4.2, so that'll probably tell you about how old it is. And so I've built some automation stuff into that, so that if I have an RSS feed and I want to basically include everything from that feed into another feed, then I can just tell it, include this other feed and it just works. I'd like to build another one in so that it'll effectively filter feeds based on specific stuff, and then allow it to pull in external RSS feeds. And allow me to modify them. So, you know, those are things that I'd like to do. And then I'd eventually like to release it as a SaaS product. But that's kind of a down the line thing. And then I've got a whole bunch of other plans for stuff. But mainly at this point, I'm just working on finding sponsors, keeping the podcast going. I recently had to switch podcast editors and, you know, just just things like that. So, yeah, a lot of the work is focused around the podcasts and kind of wrangling a lot of the business stuff that goes on around the podcasts and yeah I really do want to get back into coding more but I don't know that that's going to happen for another month or two and then the last question that I typically ask people is uh, for pics but before I do pics I just also want to let people know because I also ask usually how do you how do people follow you so I'm kind of an infrequent twitter tweeter twitterer. so you can go to uh, cmaxw on twitter and follow me Devchat.tv also has its own Twitter handle at DevchatTV. Again, I, I post there even less frequently. All of the shows have their own Twitter accounts. I'm on GitHub as CMaxW. In fact, I'm CMaxW pretty much everywhere. And if I'm not, if if you look up CMaxW and it's somebody else, then I'm Woody Two Shoes. So just kind of a grain of salt there. You're welcome to email me Chuck at Devchat.tv, and uh, I'm gonna go ahead and just jump into some pics here. Are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby and Rails? I'm putting on a two-day online conference called Ruby Remote Conf. You can check it out at rubyremoteconf.com. Like I said, it's a two-day conference where you can come and listen to speakers and experts from all around the world talk to you about issues pertaining to Ruby and web development. We have an online Slack channel, a roundtable discussion on Zoom, and all of the talks will be streamed to you live. Come check us out at rubyremoteconf.com. The picks I'm going to put out there are picks primarily around how I'm doing things these days for a lot of this stuff. So the microphone that I'm talking to you on is an RE20. It's an Electro Voice is the brand. It's not a cheap mic, but it's a very nice mic. And I really like the way that it picks up my voice. So I'm going to pick that. I'm also going to pick, I have a Zenix 802 mixer which just sits on my desk. It's not very big, which is nice. And I can pull in other resources. So I'm looking at, I've thought about adding a soundboard for years and I definitely have a port to put it on. I just don't know if it makes the show a little bit cheesy to add sound effects. But anyway, so I can do a lot of that stuff. I record this into an Eterol R-09 digital recorder. The new model is the Roland. I think they have an R-09. R05 or R06 that you can also pick up and I really like that. When I'm traveling, I tend to use the Zoom H6, which is kind of a recording studio all-in-one. It'll provide phantom power to your microphones and things like that. So I really, really, really like that piece of uh, equipment. And I have an Audio-Technica 2100, ATR or AT2100, which is both USB and XLR which is a really versatile and nice mic and that's the one that I take when I travel. And then I just have these little uh, microphone stands that I use so I just set it up and, and off we go. Now for the courses, and this is something I forgot to bring up and so I'm gonna pick this as well, uh, getacoderjob.com. When this comes out, I might have a couple spots left in the beta. The beta is 50% off the eventual list price as I think it's gonna be now. it might I might price it higher, it just depends. So if you want to learn how to get a better job, uh, that's where the focus is, not necessarily on how to get your best job, but how to get or, or your first job, not your best job, but how to get the best job that's out there for you, that meets your criteria, and, it, and, and we go through how do you find the criteria? How do you find the companies? How do you connect with people in the companies? How do you get noticed by people in the company? How do you show them that you're the kind of person that they want? How do you customize your resume and cover letters so that it communicates to them, hire this person? You know, all of those things. So, you know, definitely worth checking out if you're thinking about finding a new job. And the pricing is about $500 right now. So that that 50% off is is about five hundred dollars the regular price is going to be closer to a thousand dollars the reason that I'm pricing it that way is that I want people to seriously go through the process because I think it will help them find a better job and the other thing is is that I also feel like if I get you a ten to twenty thousand dollar raise and you know you stay in that job for two or three years then I essentially made you thirty thousand dollars or so and so it's it's not a terrible thing to ask for people to pay 500 bucks to get $30,000 over the next few years. So anyway, definitely go check that out as well. That's at getacoderjob.com. And yeah, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up after all these picks. Don't forget to go check out Ruby Dev Summit at rubydevsummit.com. That's going to be free. And then if you want the videos and some of the other high level access stuff, I'm also going to see if I can get some of our speakers to chip in like ebooks and and audio programs and things like that but yeah if you want the all access pass that gives you everything in the kitchen sink then that'll be 97 dollars up until the conference starts and then the price goes up so anyway that'll be in october and definitely go check that out as well and yeah i'll go ahead and wrap this one up and we will catch everybody next week with another interview bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn